Welcome to Summer Reading with the Deals. This is Season 1, Episode 0. And uh, what we're going to be doing in this first episode is answering the question, Why Absalom, Absalom? by William Faulkner. So, uh, there are several answers to that, but uh, the book we've picked for the summer is Absalom, Absalom, uh, 1936, uh, the well-renowned classic by William Faulkner. Uh, I I would say it's maybe the hardest readable book to read that I've ever read. Whitney, what do you think about that statement? It's um, interesting, pretty complex. Um, yeah, I guess so. I mean, you've got books like, I don't know, Finnegan's Wake or something that feel like maybe they're not readable entirely, <laughs> at least not for a lay reader or something. So, or yeah. Or dis- decipherable or something like that. Yeah. Um, especially maybe the hardest American novel mm-hmm. to read or that we've tried reading, I guess. That we have tried reading. We've not read every single book, nor has anyone, except maybe John Milton was the last person to have read everything that had been published in his lifetime. Uh, shout out to Dr. Blair Ziders if she ever hears this. Um, is this book in contention for the hardest book to read that's also considered a contender for the great American novel? I would I would certainly agree with that. Um, you know, when you think about difficult books, you have very long books like War and Peace uh, or Anna Karenina, which is what I'm reading right now. I'll probably still be reading it by the time this podcast is over. But um, the length of a book does not necessarily make it that cumbersome because, you know, people will read an 800-page Harry Potter book in a day or two. Um, So page number is not always necessarily uh, something cumbersome. Um, Certainly vocabulary can make a difference um, or, or, or narrative style. So a book like Mrs. Dalloway, which is only about 200 pages, is a very challenging book to read. Um, and then there are even more difficult books by Virginia Woolf, but uh, that's probably her most most famous. Um, but um, in terms of narrative structure, so, so just, you know, the sequence of events, uh, the, va- the vocabulary uh, sophistication, this book is only about 300 pages long, so it's not, uh, it's not as, as cumbersome. It's not, a, it's not a, a a, a door, uh, what do you call it? Doormat. Doorstop. Door doorstop. <laughs> it's not a doorstop book the way that uh, Infinite Jest or, or uh, you know, a Tolstoy book or Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky or, you know, some of these huge books are. Uh, but it's certainly, uh, it's the kind of book that you start reading and you think this isn't going to be so bad. And you get about, how, how many pages in did you start thinking this is, this is work? Well, you know, it's funny because I'd read this before, so I went into it understanding, okay, kind of take a deep breath. This is not going to be just like a light summer read, Um, but then when I started reading it, I realized that Rosa Caulfield was not really like an appealing character to me, so like being in her oppressive headspace for a long time was going to be a lot for me. So I think that was my first impression after reading maybe like the first chapter. 
that there was a, there's a, a heaviness or an oppressiveness to being in her head. And I think that's incredibly intentional and as it's supposed to be. But, um, yeah, it's a, a heavy story with some just real, like, kind of grandeur. And at the same time, you feel kind of displaced and it's hard to get your bearings in it. So you have to pause periodically and make sure you do have your bearings and try to think through the implications of even just a description <laughs> pretty frequently. So uh, Rosa Caulfield is the first, narr- well, the first narrator of the novel is Faulkner, but, uh, you know, on the third page of the novel, Rosa starts talking. Uh, and basically, uh, before we get into why Absalom, Absalom, l- let me just tell you what the back of the book says, which says, Absalom, Absalom is Faulkner's epic tale of Thomas Sutpen, an enigmatic stranger who comes to Jefferson, Mississippi in the early 1830s to wrest his mansion out of the muddy bottoms of the North Mississippi wilderness. He was a man, Faulkner said, who wanted sons, and the sons destroyed him. So, for those of you wanting to read books purely for plot and intrigue and suspense, this is really not the book to read. Um. (laughs) Although, you know what I realized reading it is that because I knew all the spoilers, you know, I knew, like the little twists and turns that don't appear until later or like that the characters don't, don't figure out until later that it took, did take away a little bit of that sense Mm -hmm. of kind of suspense or excitement that I could have been feeling otherwise. And I tried to remember when I read this, when I was 21 or whatever, did I feel that way? Like what's going to happen or what is the mystery here? Or why was this character so angry about this? Um, I, I don't know. I can't remember. I think I might have lost a little something yeah. knowing all the spoilers this time through. And, and we'll touch on that in just a second, which is the, the, the history that we both have with this book. But before we get into that, uh, if you don't know anything about this book and, and you don't know anything about William Faulkner, William Faulkner is probably uh, the most daring American writer of the, of the 1920s and 30s. Um, he's, some people would say he's the greatest American author. Um, I don't know if I agree with that or not, but then again, I haven't read everybody, so I can't, I can't say with conclusivity. Uh, but he, he certainly is worth reading to push yourself as a reader, to push yourself as an, as someone who speaks the English language, to push yourself as an American. And of course, we both live in the South. We're, we're living in Augusta, Georgia for the 10th year in a row. And, and um, you know, this is very much a Deep South book by a Deep South author. Uh, but we'll talk about um, some of his history in conjunction with writing this book in a future episode. Uh, but now, suffice to say, this is a story not told by an idiot signifying nothing full of sound and fury. No, that's uh, section one, Benji of the novel The Sound and the Fury. Uh, but basically, this is a this is another novel about Quentin Compson and to, to some extent the Compson family, uh, but to a large extent just Jefferson, Mississippi, where they've come from. Um, and so Quentin is, I wouldn't call him the protagonist. I would just call him the chief observer of the entire story. And you have four narrators. You have 
Quentin, who has narrated the entire story or almost the entire story of the entire novel already to his roommate, Shreve, I lost it, Shreve McCannon. Uh, I almost called him Shreve McKenzie because that's his name um, in The Sound of the Fury. But Faulkner, who, by the way, spelled his last name F-A-L-K-N-E-R, but his publisher was like, well, does it have a U in it or not? And he's like, I'm not particular. Um, he just, just in, in his fashion, he, he was, he just lost Shreve McKenzie, which by the way, my middle name is McKenzie, but he lost Shreve McKenzie's last name somewhere in between the sound of the fury and Absalom, Absalom. Uh, and so he just named him Shreve McCannon and, um, Shreve. It's totally fitting though, right? Because it's a, mm -hmm. this is a whole book and maybe, Faulkner's canon is about, to some degree, the fact that memory is very subjective yes. and maybe the facts of what happened really don't matter so much as the emotional content of what happened or your subjective interpretation of what happened. So what's the spelling of a name in, yeah. in, in a world in which there's so much subjectivity, you know? And, and, and that's something that we're going to dive deep into about, you know, what is special about this book or what is challenging about this book is, is uh, it really does aim for the fences uh, in terms of the, the, the grandest ambitions that a novel can have. I think it does have all those things. Um, but, um, you know, to start small, we've got four narrators. We've got Quentin narrating to Shreve again. So Shreve already knows almost the entire story. That's why he takes over so much of the narration when they're talking together. But basically... Shreve has heard it from Quentin, who has heard it from two principal people, one of whom is his father, Jason Compson, uh, Jason Lysurgis. Uh, is it Lysurgis or Lysander? I think it's Lysurgis. Anyways, um, Jason Compson, um, who is this, the son of uh, General Compson, whose first name is... is escaping me right now. I think it's good Hugh, but anyways, maybe that's his grandma, his mother's name. Uh, but who cares? Cause Faulkner didn't even get Shreve's last name. Right. Uh, but I'll, I'll correct it on a future episode, but, um, you've got Quentin's father has, has told so much of this story to Quentin whom, you know, whom, who was told the story by his own father, who was a friend of Thomas Sutpen. So Thomas Sutpen, if you wanted to say who's the, who's the protagonist of this novel, Thomas Sutpen is, this, is the protagonist, according to Faulkner. Um, but I think the purpose of this novel is not to tell the story of Thomas Sutpen so much as to tell... Well, let me just put it this way. Quentin Compson in The Sound of the Fury uh, is, is narrating his portion of the family story as he's in Cambridge, Massachusetts as a Harvard student in 1910 in the summer, I think it's June. So it's like right at the end of the term, um, for the, for the spring term. And, and, um, he, he commits suicide by jumping off the bridge into the Charles river. And so, um, to, to put it succinctly, I think that Absalom Absalom is in part a novel that explains why Quentin Compson killed himself. And so we'll get into that in a later episode, but, but that's, 
that's part of why Quentin is so central to this this entire story, even though he has no relation to Thomas Sutpin. I mean, his grandfather was friends with him. Okay, there you go. But um, in those four narrators, so Quentin, Shreve, um, Jason Compton, uh, Quentin's father, and then Miss Rosa Coldfield, who Whitney's already mentioned, um, those are the four people telling the story to Quentin and through Quentin and back to Quentin. Um, so he's kind of the, the, the central, the, the, the linchpin of all, all, all the other narrators. But then you've also got the story has been told to Jason Compton by his father, who was friends with Sutpen. So Sutpen has told some of the to- story. And um, Rosa Coldfield has heard some of the story from her sister Ellen or her niece Judith or um, Clytemnestra, who is the uh, house slave for the Sutpen family who we find out is also Thomas Sutpin's daughter. Um, and, and so really uh, four narrators in principle, but, but really many narrators telling vicariously through these four principal narrators. Um, so, so that's in a nutshell what this novel is. Uh, but it's, it's a novel about the Civil War. It's a novel about the antebellum South, and it's a novel about the reconstruction of the South in the post post Civil War, uh, post bellum War, uh, post bellum uh, South, and 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 uh, the the time frame is 1807, which is when Thomas Sutpen is born in in Western Virginia, uh, because West Virginia was not a state then, but he's born in the West Virginia portion of the the United States. And uh, it goes all the way until 1910, which is when, when Quentin and Shreve are, are telling the story to one another and retelling the story and, and imagining some of the story, as we'll talk about. This story is not factual. It, it's partially factual, partially historical, partially impressionistic, and partially just pure conjecture or conspiracy, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, but it's... a uh, to me, it's a fascinating story, but a very difficult story to read. So, so uh, naturally, I have thought about teaching it because I teach at Augusta University and I teach English courses. And and uh, what better thing to teach than something that is that is um, that, that that is very rereadable? And uh, one of the skills that Whitney and I have talked a lot about that that students need is the ability to to reread texts and get more and glean more and, and, and appreciate more, um, and that the best texts stand up to rereading you know, even multiple times in a semester or a school year. So um, that's really the, the starting place that I'm taking is reading it uh, with the hope of hopefully teaching it in like a 2,000-level literary survey class. Um, but uh, this kind of goes into our, our history with with. Faulkner and Absalom Absalom. So I remember very early when Whitney and I were dating, or maybe maybe we would have been dating for a while, but but it was before we were married, she mentioned that Faulkner overlapped a lot with Emily Bronte. And I thought that was a fascinating uh, connection, and I had never heard it before. Uh, and so, um, you know, she had mentioned it with The Sound and the Fury in connection to Wuthering Heights, um, and so uh, here we are, flash forward 15 years, COVID 2020, uh, I had a lot of time on my hands because of the, the quarantine, and I decided I would read Wuthering Heights, and I would reread Absalom Absalom, and just see, 
do they overlap some? Um, I have not reread all of Sound of the Fury in in this time, but I'm going to reread some of it. So, um, so that was one idea that kind of sparked getting back into Absalom, Absalom. And I, I've probably read it three times in my life, uh, one of which was probably... Mm, about about 12 years ago, and then one of which was probably about f- six or seven years ago, and then this has been the most recent time. But uh, before I'd ever read it, Whitney had actually read it, so I'm going to tell the story quickly, and then Whitney can, can kind of take over the, the handoff here. Uh, I had gone to visit Dr. Hubert McAlexander's uh, 20th century American novel class as a student at UGA in fall of 2004, three, fall of 2003. Gosh, we've known each other 17 years. Um, we've known each other even longer than I thought we had. Um, but um, I went and visited that class because I was in the American Modernism class, and we had read The Sound of the Fury, and I knew that they were reading Absalom, Absalom, and I felt like our class had not done very well with The, the Sound of the Fury, myself included, and I just wanted to see does he like their class better, and if so, why? And I went, and um, and Whitney was in that class, and I had seen Whitney before. I, I recognized her because she was in my romanticism class the semester before, and we had never taught that whole class. So we, you know, we could have met each other then, fallen in love then, but you know that just wasn't God's timing. That's okay. Um, but uh, I do remember very distinctly. This is right around October. 10th or so. I'm just spitballing the number, but it was definitely a good ways into the semester, but it was, you know, it was mid, mid, mid term of the semester. So I go to the class, they're talking about Absalom, Absalom, and, and far and away, the person that was saying the most brilliant things was Whitney. And so I see her, she's wearing her burgundy velvet jacket. And, you know, she's just saying uh, very, insightful things and speaking with such authority about the text. And I, I was just blown away because I was like, nobody, nobody is this smart in my class, including me. <laughs> and so uh, that was my first, you know, real introduction to Whitney as in terms of speaking in class. Um, but Whitney, I'll let you take up there. What were your impressions about, you know, reading Aslam Aslam for, for class and, and, you know, your kind of ideas then as you remember them now? Well, first of all, I'm kind of shocked to hear you say that I was speaking with authority on Absalom Absalom because that was still in the time of my life when I was pretty terrified of speaking in class. Um, I was basically forcing myself to speak in class um, each class meeting. That was my rule for myself as I, I had to, by the time I walked out the door, I had to have said something. Um, maybe I had a lot to say because I would I would really extensively prepare before class so that I would have something to say. I would make notes about things I could say. You know, I I just um, had a lot of fear about speaking up, and so I it, it is encouraging to think even all those years ago. You know that I think as I was trying to push myself to grow bolder and like share with people the things that were in my mind and my heart that it 
bore some fruit. And obviously it brought us together and changed the course of our life, I guess, that I was speaking in class. So awesome. Um, in terms so of- everyone should speak in class every chance they get because you never know who's going to notice. And you, you can do it. Honestly, like it will feel terrifying at first, but it slowly becomes less terrifying the more you do it. So just try, you know. Um, but yeah, so in terms of actually reading Absalom, Absalom, so I don't have a, an excellent memory. So it's not like I have this really kind of sharp sense of what that was like. I do remember that really my whole reading life, I really loved kind of gothic tales that were frightening and grand and tragic and intense and emotionally affecting and mysterious. And this fit all of those for me. Um, I liked the fact that it was it felt like, you know, a Shakespearean tragedy or a Greek tragedy, but it was set in the South. Um, being from the South, I think, you, especially a small town um, like like I was, it's very easy to become, you know, fascinated by what that legacy means, um, especially as you start broadening your horizons and realizing the perception that people around the country have of where you grew up and what you might be like and what your forebears were like. Um, so on that, on that level, it kind of it hit home and was interesting to me in, in a way that also reading Flannery O'Connor was fascinating to me. Um, and she also, I think, injects some, a certain level of just like drama and grandeur and tragedy into these particular lives. And I don't think I'd really had a vision for doing that before. So I really was fascinated by both The Sound and the Fury in this novel when I read them. I remember feeling like it was really tough to um, understand what was going on. And I had tried to move out of that phase of my life where I was relying on outside interpretations to help me. You know, when I first started trying to read hard books, I think I would want to read, you know, summaries and like critical explanations that were kind of going to help me wrap my head around something. I was trying to move away from that and think independently by the time I was in this course, but it was hard. Um, it, you have to hold on to the parts that you do find resonant and compelling and that you do kind of know what to make of a little bit, like anchors, so that you don't feel like you're just drifting randomly as you read the book. And I think looking back at my old notes, I still have the copy of the book. This is why you, I always keep my books. Yes. I saw the copy of the book that I read then. I looked through my notes a little. And, you know, they're kind of spare. Like, the, the copy I read this week is full of notes. And I felt like my, felt like my mind was just teeming with thoughts. And I, I couldn't get them down fast enough. Seeing connections, things like that. Um, I wasn't there yet when I read it the first time. It was just here and there. Something would strike me, and I would sort of have an insight or a flash. So I love looking back on this is so... I think it's encouraging because I realized that as a reader, as a thinker, as a person of confidence, I've just kept growing over the years, and I didn't really feel confident that that was going to happen at that point in my life, per se, um, but it has, so it, it's nice to 
to look back and reflect on that and reread a book um, after all that space of, of time. Well, I think that's that's really one of the main reasons we're doing this and that, that we hope the listeners that, that pick up on this and stay with us till the end will also do, which is, you know, we're teachers of, of, of literature and, and writing and, and speaking about literature. And, and um, so we do that all the time. I mean, that's, that's what we do as a profession, uh, Whitney at the high school level and I, I do at the college level. But, um, you know, this, this is allowing us to kind of reenact, if I can use a loaded word, uh, reenact being students of literature. And, and I think we're still students of literature. I mean, that's why I'm reading Anna Karenina. I'm not reading it so I can teach it. I'm reading it to, to see if I like it and just to see what I can glean from it. And, and it's a powerful book and in its own right. But um, Absalom, Absalom, I think it is, is the kind of book you never feel the master of uh, because it's about history. And, and you can't you can't know everything about history. I mean, you can't even know every single thing about one second of life on earth. That's how, that's how complex life is. Uh, that's how many people there are. That's how many thoughts are going through people's heads and actions are being, you know, and, and we follow the news and we follow um, narratives that are compelling and we, we follow things uh, to, to know about our time. But uh, just as um, Quentin is really, kind of taking a fire hose to the face with uh, the past in this novel, you know, that that's how it can feel when we look backward. Um, and, and so, you know, this, this novel, I think, is a really powerful opportunity for people to confront the past. Um, and I wrote one of the notes in my, my copy of the novel, is this novel about seeing the past? Um, because, you know, one thing that, that great readers do, and Whitney does this well, and I do it terribly, is they can envision what's happening on the page in their minds. And that that really is what this novel is doing through its multiple narrators, through its structure, through its setting. I mean, this whole thing is set in a cold room in Cambridge, Massachusetts at Harvard University in the, you know, in, in the late winter of 1910 so it's like february january february and yet it sprawls really a hundred years from 1807 to 1910 and and it really even involves all of what i would call american history you know uh in terms of it involves the slavery that that started in in the 1600s um in in the west indies and and obviously in Virginia as well, um, and, and it goes all the way till, you know, 1910, but I think it stretches, the, the questions that it raises stretch to 2020 and stretch to really probably the end of time, um, but I think it's, it's a powerful novel, and we're, we're looking forward to talking about its particulars, but some of the questions that we're going to be asking and answering um, probably the next episode is going to be, why Rosa Coldfield? So, uh, we'll just start at the beginning and work our way to the end. Uh, but, you know, why is Quentin meeting with Rosa Coldfield? What does she want to tell him? What does she want him to do for her or with her? Um, and, and we'll get into all of that in another episode. But that's one question. Um, why more Quentin Compson? I mean, he's already, he's already died, you know? Sound of the Fury is, is 
you know, one quarter of it is is told by him, and he he commits suicide in the book. And so, why why did Faulkner need to tell more of his story? And I think I I touched on it in part because it's I think it's in some respects it's it's Faulkner's attempt to explain Quentin Compson so that we can understand his suicide better. Um, because why on earth is someone from Jefferson, Mississippi at Harvard? I mean, I get it. Harvard's a great school. I, you know, I would have been proud to go there if I had gone there. But that's a long way from Jefferson, Mississippi. Why didn't he just go to Vanderbilt? You know, why, why didn't he stay in the South and go someplace prestigious? Well, we'll, we'll talk about that as its own question, um, which is why more Quentin and why is Quentin at Harvard? Um, one of the questions we'll talk about is why this structure? Uh, because I think the structure is, is a central stumbling block to, to the novel, but also a, a central building block to the novel. Um, so we'll talk about that. Um, and, and then we'll talk about <laughs> why these sentences. Uh, at some point, this was uh, known as the Guinness Book of World Records holder of the longest sentence. I think the sentence was 1,250 words long. Um, I could be wrong on that, but, but I think I'm, I'm vaguely remembering that. I'll just fact check it when we do it in, de- in depth. But we'll talk about the sentences, the syntax, the, just the, the narrative voices and, and how Faulkner created this book to be so um, daunting and so oppressive, but also so um, compelling and I think so... Um, fulfilling to read if you if you really wrestle with it and then finally uh absalom comma absalom exclamation point um absalom absalom why is this book called absalom absalom so those are a couple of the questions that that we'll answer uh in in separate episodes but um that's kind of where where i wanted to you know punctuate it um whitney what kind of what kind of thoughts do you have let's let's kind of go to like you just read it for the second time since 2003. Going into it and, and, and fresh off of reading it, what, what was your purpose for reading it other than just to read it to appease me to do this podcast? Um, I mean, I guess, I don't know that I would have picked this up um, as the next thing I was going to read, um, to read this podcast, and I, I made a joke when I got to the end of this book that probably has been made before, um, where I told Adam, I didn't hate it. I didn't hate it. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't hate it, which is how the book ends, but not speaking about the book, speaking about the South. Um, maybe I was protesting too much, but I, I truly didn't. Um, in fact, as I just got used to the kind of narrative flow and the voices and started to let the sentences kind of wash over me a little more. My imagination got quickened so that I could imagine what was happening more vividly. Um, I got into it. I felt like I was living in the story and it was, it was alive to me and I, you know, was fascinated. And so I think, um, I love, I love that. I love that about fiction. I'll just say in general, um, that it frees you to build a world in your mind because everything that I know about Anna Karenina 
is contained within the pages of Anna Karenina, right? Like that's canonical in a way that reading about history simply can't be because like you said, the real world is so complex. I like that fiction creates a closed system and I can truly imagine it. Whereas when I read a biography or a historical work, which I I really love to read, I get this mild anxiety the whole time that I might not be imagining it right. I will... I will turn back to the photographs of the person in question hundreds of times while I read a biography and just try to correct my vision of that person, like moving through space, what they looked like, maybe what they sounded like. I'll obsess over it a little bit because I want to imagine it right, which is silly, but there's something in me that wants to do that, but fiction frees me. Um, And this book has helped me think through being freer about that as I think about history, because Mm. this is a book about people recreating history and thinking, you know what, we don't know exactly why this person did this or why this happened or what happened here, but this, this feels right as the motive and we're going to rest in it. We're going to let that be the the explanation because in real life, think about how often Adam, how often are you and I, speculating over other people's motives in real life. All the time. Why did this person do this? I don't understand. Um, Coming up with possibilities. Maybe there are four possibilities that we can think of, and we're not sure which one is right. And it can be frustrating, to say the least, um, because for some reason we don't feel free to ask or whatever. So, yeah, I think this book is... um, to some degree, making the case that you are free to let the past mean what it means to you. I think there could be a little danger in that because, you know, it can be reckless and it can be, I do think there's such a thing as truth. You know, I'm not a relativist, um, but I think that at the same time, it's a good reality check to realize that the past is lost to us to a large degree, but the past still influences and weighs upon us too. It's not irrelevant either. So this book is a lot of it seems to me to be about finding that that balance in the ways that we think about history, and you know, Faulkner sees the South as haunted, and so yeah. you know, if if we just try to pretend we're not haunted by the past, the the ghost might harm us instead of befriending us. <laughs> Well, and that's, I mean, a big thing that people talk about about this novel is it's a ghost story. Um, you know, it, 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 it's about the haunt, the, 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 how the past haunts the present, and uh, like Whitney was saying, and, and I can't find it. I'm just looking, and I can't find it. But um, the question, yeah, there it is. Um, Shreve says to Quentin, tell me about the South. What's it like there? What do they do there? Why do they live there? Why do they live at all? And so, you know, at, at the beginning of our podcast here in the first episode, I think that's a good question to, to end on uh, because it really does carry us. It's like, well, this, this, this book is the answer to that question, and, and it's the most uh, nonlinear, <laughs> intangible, abstract. It, it's so far from being a clear, concise, persuasive answer that by the end of the novel, Shreve is asking, why do you hate the South? And 
Quentin says, like Whitney said, I don't hate it. I don't. I don't hate it. I don't hate it. And and I think that that's that, that that's one of the big questions to to ask about this novel and about the South, especially for Southerners, is you know why do people live here? Why why you know why why does the South continue to be a region that that people choose to live in and people choose to uh, you know live with the ghosts of the of the past of the South in and and do people hate it in the South and why or why not and you know we've lived in the South pretty much our whole lives um, and so you know we obviously don't hate it as much as someone who would you know get, get out of town as quickly as possible but it's a uh, it's you know, it, it's it's a region that's that's unique in America. I mean, I, I think every other region in America has a less complicated identity. Um, not that they don't have equally complex identities, but their complications are not as profound and 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 um, just you know pervasive uh, as as we still see in the South and, and, um, and I've sometimes felt as if I were supposed to hate it, mm-hmm. especially when I went, went to be around people who weren't from here. I, yeah. I've been treated as if I were supposed to think of myself as having escaped, which mm-hmm. I didn't. And so, yeah. And, and that's, that's where we'll, we'll end off for today. I'm going to find it again cause I marked it. I think it's the best novel yet written by an American, Faulkner said. Uh, and, and that's where we'll stop is, is <laughs> hang with us on this podcast and, and, and determine for yourself, was, was William Faulkner just tooting his own horn and, and, and <laughs> completely uh, you know, biased in saying this, or was he right? What, was this the best novel yet written by an American as of 1936. And, you know, I I don't know if we'll come to a conclusive answer with this podcast for ourselves, but you certainly uh, would do yourself a a world of good to read this book because if nothing else, it will teach you how little you know about the English language and how much you can know and how much more you can use it in mastery and and perfection and and, um, excellence instead of you know, just using your lowest common denominator uh, speech patterns or, or writing patterns. And, you know, we both teach writing. So it's like, well, if, if you can't get anything outside of this, this novel, let's, let's just expand our vocabularies and use the word effluvium as often as possible. And in the meantime, Adam and I will go read all the other American novels published before this one and make sure it's conclusively the best and we'll report back. <laughs> <laughs> Whitney will read about 99% of them, and I'll skim the other 1%. Well, thank you for listening with us, and we look forward to uh, delivering more Absalom Absalom discussion to you with summer reading with the deals in the next episode. Bye-bye. <laughs>